Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the ANU and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Well, it's late afternoon on Thursday, the 21st of January today. Yesterday or overnight, Joe Biden was inaugurated president. And so we find ourselves very much looking forward and wondering what's to come. So we'll keep our recent focus on the United States to begin today. First, revisiting events at the US Capitol and whether our views have changed from our initial reactions. Next, we'll consider a document that was recently declassified by the Trump administration in its final days, which sets out the Indo-Pacific strategy it was attempting to pursue throughout its time in office. Third on our agenda is the latest cooperation between Five Eyes nations, though it's called something different this time. And finally, we'll discuss or debate whether Australia needs fresh thinking in Australian foreign policy. Okay, to begin, it's been two weeks now, Alan, since the storming of the US Capitol building. And we recorded our last episode less than 48 hours, I think, after those events. So I wanted us both to have a chance to revise our original takes, given in haste then with incomplete information as they were. Since then, of course, we've seen the FBI beginning to make numerous arrests. There has been some remarkable work done, journalism done, to reconstruct events inside the building, which do show how close the rioters and insurrectionists came to reaching lawmakers and how there definitely was an element of the rioters who were planning the attack in advance and who may have even had help from people in positions of public trust. Very frightening. Politically, the Democrat-controlled House swiftly voted to impeach Trump, but the still GOP-controlled Senate refused to commence the trial until after the inauguration. So that's still to come. So, Alan, how are you thinking about these events now with the benefit of a bit more hindsight? Well, look, I think in retrospect, we were too relaxed about it and that we saw it too much through those wacky Americans sort of lens. And as more video and information comes out, as you say, it's it's looking more dangerous to me now than it did did then. You talked about the great reporting. There was a particularly good piece, I thought, from Luke Mangelson, who was embedded, actually embedded with the rioters for the New Yorker, which I recommend. I also think, reflecting on it, that I could have been harder on Scott Morrison and his sort of evasion of sort of naming Donald Trump. It's not that I resile from the view that it was okay for him not to be offering commentary on what was going on. But in the end, he seemed to me to be artificially straining for ways of avoiding naming or blaming Trump. Mm. And if Morrison should have approached this a little differently, why is that? Like, Is it because it would be in the interests of Australian foreign policy or in the interests of the health of our own democracy? Or are you sort of more expressing a personal moral sentiment here? Well, it's not foreign policy so much as the values that we and the, and the government and Morrison talk about all the time. And consistency in these matters is important. So when the Prime Minister says, I'm, I'm quoting here from a, an interview he did, 
I think it was disappointing, very disappointing that things were allowed to get to that stage. And, you know, the things that were said encouraged others to come to the capital and engage in that way were incredibly disappointing. Now, if he'd just said the things that the president said mm. rather than the passive, the things that were said, mm. I think it would have sounded a lot more honest and credible. So what, mm. what about you, Darren? What are your second thoughts? Yes, I, I'm struck by how close a call it was from being or how close we came to what could have been a historic act of political violence and even the horror of what did happen, including against police officers or especially against the police officers who were trying to defend the Capitol. So I, I'm certainly in the same boat as you, Alan, as I think I was wrong to place too much emphasis on the ridiculousness or the absurdity of the events and framing a lot of what was happening as being opportunistic. While I think that, that element was there, I think that intentional dimension, which we still only know about partially, will be the prominent story you know, when the histories are, are written. On the impeachment, there were only 10 GOP members of the House that voted to impeach, and it, it does still seem unlikely that we'll get 16 or 17 Republican senators to do so that would be required to convict him in the Senate. So I think right now Trump does still enjoy the support of a strong majority inside the Republican Party. And if he's not impeached, then you would have to say he is the favourite for 2024 now. So the GOP remains not just divided, but I think broken as a political movement right now. And really, the Republican Party looks more like a far-right European party, like the French National Front or the Alternative for Germany, than they do a mainstream centre-right party. And if they stay on this course, the country could become ungovernable. And for the very right far-right fringe, you know, these events could be galvanising and the threat of further political violence could be with us. But having said that, let me try to finish this bit on an optimistic note. You know, the deplatforming of Trump, despite raising many uncomfortable questions about the power of, of technology companies, really did accelerate the loss of his power. I mean, the silence on Twitter has been blissful, I imagine, mostly for Republican lawmakers. And overall, you do see his support in polls you know, falling. So I think we can still hope that two years will pass, the GOP primary will get started, and Trump, by that point, will be so diminished that the, the thought of him running again is, is, is unthinkable. And he obviously faces a lot of legal troubles, which could also take up all of his attention. You sent me a Financial Times piece, Alan, that argued that rational engagement and persuasion were not going to work with Trump supporters. And the framing of that piece was sort of in the negative, like this is, you know, a, a potentially impossible thing to solve. While I agree with that sentiment, I think the optimistic way of thinking about it is that, and I think the Democratic Party realises this as well, is that the way you are going to engage with Trump voters and indeed the broader electorate is to focus not on persuasion and, and rhetoric, but on delivering tangible benefits to people as perhaps as simple as just giving them money, like stimulus checks, and that once that starts happening, I want to believe that that can help win people over and that show them that government can work for them and, and, and erode Trumpism. I saw the writer for The Atlantic, Derek Thompson, summed it up as big, fast, and simple. And while we are not a domestic policy podcast, Alan, I think that's really good advice for the, for the incoming administration. 
Presumably because of the time difference, you could watch the inauguration. I did, yeah. Without having to get up at three in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, I've only seen bits of it on YouTube, but I did feel that if you want an emergency injection of hope for the United States, you just need to look at that 22-year-old Amanda Gorman reciting her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration this morning. And, you know, you, you'll get that hope back again. It was terrific, wasn't it? Amen, Alan. Yeah, it, it really was something special. Okay, well, let's move on to our second item. On the 12th of January, which was little more than a week before the inauguration, the Trump administration declassified a secret document written in early 2018, which essentially lays out the government's Indo-Pacific strategy. Normally, this declassification would not have happened until 2043. So we have here a deliberate decision by the White House to declassify. And and many have speculated as to why, including perhaps to, to shape or box in even the incoming Biden administration and lock in some of the more assertive elements of Washington's strategy towards Beijing. So I'll include a link to the document in the show notes and ask you for your highlights, Alan. But let me quickly mention three things that jumped out to me. One, the very first sentence of the document, which frames as a national security challenge, quote, how to maintain U.S. strategic primacy in the Indo-Pacific region, end quote. Though, of course, the term primacy is not defined. Two, an emphasis on India to act as a counterbalance, was the word used, to China. And three, not very much on, on values or democracy. But, Alan, before I ask you about the substance, can I just ask how unusual is this event? You know, how interesting is it for you to see a document like this declassified and would our colleagues inside the Australian government feel the same way? It's very unusual to get something declassified like this, that is not deliberately leaked, but put out into the public domain decades before it usually would be. And I expect that it's that fact rather than the content that would have been the most surprising thing to Australian officials. Now, you went through the reasons why it happened, presumably partly to burnish the Trump administration's policy legacy and to reassure the the allies and complicate life for the Biden administration. There's another issue here, though, which is that it did show how a lot of documents classified at a very high level could, with only a few minimal changes, Mm. be put out into the public domain without terrifying catastrophic implications. And I think that that knowledge would cause a certain amount of nervousness among the former colleagues in Canberra. It is a reminder of overclassification of lots of policy documents. Not I'm not talking about intelligence, but policy documents in government. Yeah, I was going to say that one of the great fears was that Trump would declassify intelligence on some quest to exonerate himself from the Russia stuff and that that would compromise sources. But I think, yeah, that distinction between policy and intelligence is a good one. Turning to the document itself, Alan, what did you personally find notable? I think basically the starkness of the language, which was undraped by the usual diplomatic proprieties. So you got you know, right in your face, statements like strategic competition between the United States and China will persist owing to the divergent nature and goals of our political and economic systems. The divergent nature of the political systems means that 
strategic competition will persist. That's saying, you know, something quite big. And you, you yourself mentioned the direct assertion of the desire to maintain American primacy. Mm. Also, I thought notable was the fact that US officials briefing the Axios news site after the event said that Australia's experience with China had strongly influenced the drafting of the strategy. And I'm quoting from one of them here, in many ways, they were ahead of the curve in understanding the influence operations and interference in domestic systems. And they singled out the work of former journalist and Turnbull staffer John Garno. So that was interesting as a suggestion. I mean, the, the usual view, particularly in the sort of left-wing media, is that Australia is doing the bidding of the United States. But this does seem to have been an issue where Australia was in the lead. You mentioned a moment ago, Alan, about how uncomplicated it sort of seemingly was to declassify a policy document and, and that that might make some officials in Australia kind of a little bit uncomfortable. It's interesting then to think about whether or not the authors of this document ever envisaged it would become public so soon. You know, presumably when they were writing it, they were thinking about what do we want to do? They weren't thinking about the messaging value of the document. So I guess what I'm asking here is you described before this document as being stark and, and undraped by diplomatic proprieties. Does that kind of you know, approach or that tone the way that Australian internal documents are written as well? Or, or do we hedge and, and use lots of flowery language even when we're talking to ourselves internally? No, I don't think we use language other than pretty straightforward language when talking to ourselves. And you just really have to look at the strategic documents from Australia, which are now in the public domain to see that. Whether the Americans thought that they were going to release it, I don't know. But the person mainly responsible seems to have been Matt Pottinger, who is the Deputy National Security Advisor and China expert on Trump's NSC. So you can't imagine that it was released without his knowledge and acquiescence. And it may well have been that he wanted his own views to be out on the public record. Thinking about the difference between Australian and American documents, though, I think what we miss, unless it's changed in the past few years, is the sort of integration of objectives and actions, which you see in this you know, very short 10-page document, which is then meant to inform the activities of all agencies. So we've got a you know defense white papers and foreign policy white papers, but this was a document which was supposed to be relevant to all agencies. And that's probably because it was produced through the NSC process? Through the NSC process, yeah. yeah. And we've talked before about whether Australia should have something yeah. similar yeah. coordinating. Yeah, yeah. interesting, yeah. interesting. And so what, what about you? Yeah, my overall impression was that it was a mostly reasonable document in the sense that it reflected my own understanding of what the US's interests are in the region. Some of the objectives and some of the plans to achieve them, I didn't fully agree with. And there were certainly places that I would place a different emphasis. But the, overall, I didn't find the document objectionable. But it wasn't also that entirely coherent. You know, it calls for primacy at the outset, but then later on describes the objective of wanting to deny Chinese military dominance inside the first island chain which even if achieved, falls well short of primacy. Uh, it also talked early on about protecting core values and liberties at home, but not abroad. 
but then later specifies an objective to be the promotion of US values throughout the region to maintain influence and, and counterbalance Chinese models of government. So I think, you know, putting my academic hat on, if it, if it was going through the peer review process, these inconsistencies would have been highlighted. I think there are three ways you can read the overall document. You know, one, you can say that it was right. It is right. And the strategy was working. Two, you could say it was mostly right, but that the Trump administration did a terrible job of executing it, especially in terms of their relations with allies and partners. Or three, you could say it's wrong, likely because it's too confrontational towards China and is likely to cause a spiral of escalation that could lead to a major power war. Now, it seems very likely that the Biden administration falls into the second camp, but I guess we'll see once they really get started. To me, what is usually the case will be most interesting is how it's received in regional capitals. If you told regional governments that this was the strategy, but that it would be pursued competently, would they be happy with it? My sense is that most governments in the region do want the US to be more engaged and do more. So if this was it, you know, would they feel happier? Would they feel more or less secure? I think is the interesting question. Okay, well, our third item, Alan, you drew my attention to a press release from Peter Dutton, the Minister of Home Affairs, entitled Five Country Statement to EU to Prevent Child Abuse Online, which talks about, quote, Australia and its five country partners, end quote. Now, five and country are both capitalised in this document, so it's sort of meant to be a proper noun, five countries. But it's not five other countries, as it turns out. It's the five eyes countries, the UK, US, New Zealand, Canada, and Australia, that grouping. So I asked our top-notch AIIA intern, Mitchell, to look into this, and his research suggested that this particular five-country grouping has existed for some time in the form of a five-country conference focused on immigration issues, but that each of the five participating countries talks about it differently. And in particular, he found one interesting press release from the UK back in 2015 that equated the five-country ministerial directly with the five eyes label. And I'll post a link in the show notes for those who are curious. So, Alan, we've talked about this a bit previously, and I know you find it very intriguing. So what's going on here? Well, look, I know that you think this is just an eccentric preoccupation of mine, <laughs> Darren, but just to, to give you an example of why I get dragged into it, Dutton's press release statement says a copy of the five countries statement can be found on the Department of Home Affairs site. So you click through to get that and you find something which says, for a copy of the five countries statement, click on the gov.uk website. So you do that and then you find a message that says, page not found. <laughs> so the QAnon conspirators would be right into this. It's about child abuse. It's right up their line. They need, they need something else to hang on to now, and this could be it. Now, look, uh, seriously, what, what has me a bit worried is just the proliferation of these Anglosphere groupings. I've got nothing against any of the members. All of them are among our you know, easiest friends, and we have things that we can, you know, work with each other on. But I think especially when you add incipient economic groupings that Josh Frydenberg has talked about, mm. this all adds up to a sort of contraction in Australia's international engagement, and it's getting more and more common. Um, I see, for example, that four of the five eyes put out a statement 
about the arrest of 55 political figures in Hong Kong on 10 January. Now, again, that issue is well worth a statement from the Australian government. But it was interesting that New Zealand wasn't there and, you know, maybe New Zealand Foreign Minister Nanea Mahuta was on holiday, but I suspect that the New, the, the New Zealanders decided that they didn't want to go in jointly on this. And in my view, again, Australia is much better off speaking in our own name on such questions. I don't think the joint statement adds a single grain of weight to the pressure on China over this issue, but it does make Australia look like a junior partner to the Americans and the Brits. And, you know, one of the things I worry about is there's going to be more pressure on us for this sort of thing as the UK looks around for new partners and forums to make up for its divorce from Europe. Mm, mm. Let me make a a partial counter-argument here. I mean, I I certainly agree that the Anglo focus is not broadening our horizons and there is a risk of us appearing to be a junior partner. But I also think it's important to note that the preference of China, and I'm looking at this through a China lens here, is to deal with countries on a bilateral basis, especially in the context of disputes or or disagreements about behaviour. You know, Beijing doesn't like multilateralizing disputes, in part, I assume, because that dilutes you know, bilateral power advantages that they enjoy. And so while Australia, obviously, we need to go beyond talking to our best friends, I do see merit in Canberra finding common cause with partners on issues where individual states are having difficulty with China. And you know, if you just have to look at the trade disruptions that we've experienced over the past nine months, for a good example. And so if this kind of grouping, which is obviously about something completely different, leads to more of that, then I see it as a positive. Well, well, maybe. And, and it's certainly intrinsic to the role of foreign policy that you are trying to expand the space available to you in the international system through which you can advance your interests and protect your values. I just think there are better ways of doing it. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I'm I'm very much talking about situations where there are these serious bilateral disputes and there's a lot of ill will or discord in, in the air and China is, is maybe throwing its weight around as Australia has experienced. Mm, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's a different sort of calculus, I guess, than the situation to criticising you know, what Beijing is doing in, in places like Hong Kong and Xinjiang. It's a different calculus anyway. Yeah. All right, let's, let's move on to our final item, Alan, which is really me taking some bait and I'm justifying doing so because you get brought into this story quite directly. Last weekend, a piece came out in the Australian Financial Review by Andrew Clark titled, Time for New Foreign Policy Thinking in the Canberra Citadel, which attracted much attention on Twitter and I found a little bit vexing, but not for the reasons that most did, which we'll get to in a moment. The message of the piece, which I'll post so listeners can make up their own minds, was that Prime Minister Morrison should convene some kind of forum to come up with ideas on how Australia can navigate a turbulent world. Attending this forum would be, quote, experienced figures in dealing with these matters, end quote. And that would include serving officials, you know, Francis Adamson, Mark Pazzullo were on the list, prominent business figures, think tankers, academics, and, and I quote, 
A fair sprinkling of wise old owls with long experience <laughs> of both global superpowers, like former ONA boss Alan Gingell, end quote. Now, to begin, the, the very legitimate point was made on Twitter that the list, while long, had only two women on it, and, and it was full of familiar names. So I want to acknowledge both those points. But I do have a soapbox to climb onto about this. But before I do, given our listeners have with us right now Australia's preeminent wise old oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> of Australian foreign policy, I must ask on all of our behalves, are you, Alan, the solution to the apparent malaise in our foreign policy? <laughs> oh, God, how embarrassing. You know you're getting past it when they put you into the wise old owl category. I mean, it just... Appalling that it should come to this. No, Darren, I'm not the solution and neither is any other individual, but public debate and contestability, that's a good thing. It's why the AIIA, supporters of this podcast, exists. And there hasn't been all that much of it recently. Our friend Richard Maud, who's been on with us a couple of times, mm. has spoken about the consultative work that they did before the 2017 Foreign Policy White Paper came out. And that's a while ago now and a, and a very different world. And the same sort of work was done for the 2016 Defence White Paper, I think, but not for the 2020 update. So, look, in a way, the form and forum for such discussions don't matter all that much. It's the need to gather expertise and views and, above all, to have people challenge the conventional wisdom, even if, in the end, the result is to reaffirm that wisdom. I would like to think, by the way, and we didn't discuss this earlier on in terms of the inauguration, that the very clear emphasis the Biden administration is putting on restoring diplomacy to a central place in American statecraft will have an impact here as well in the nature of this discussion. So anyway, with that said, Darren, I can see that I've served the purpose of enabling you to mount your soapbox, <laughs> so I'll gladly pass the floor over to you. Before I begin, out on that last point about the Biden administration, you know, nominating a former diplomat, Bill Burns, to head the CIA is a positive development on that on that front, showing that he's sort of privileging the role of diplomats in a, across government, not just inside the State Department. So that's that's a good thing. I admit that I have calmed down a little bit from my initial rantings at my computer screen when I first read all this unfolding. But let me make three points, and I'm glad this is our last segment so listeners can skip ahead to their next podcast if they, they don't want to hear me rant for the next few minutes. Oh, they wouldn't miss it, Darren. <laughs> all right. Well, first, I've got three points. The first point is that I do find calls for fresh thinking vexing. And, and I think the reason is because I, I just don't think there is that much of an untapped well out there. You know, the wonderful thing about the internet is if you have a fresh, bold idea, you can write it up. You know, at the very least, you can post it on Medium. And to me, it feels like the Australian foreign policy debate is as incrementalist as the government policymaking that it is so critical of. You know, I, I thought hard about what I thought to be the boldest contribution in recent years. And I want to separate here sort of policy ideas for how we should actually orient ourselves from new empirical insights. So I think, and we discussed this offline before, mm -hmm. Alan, that you know there have been some fantastic contributions, including by people of all ages in, in understanding more about the world and some of the work of Alex Josky on foreign interference will fall into that category. But what I'm talking about now is sort of actual advocacy for policy positions. And to me, the one example I can think of from, from recent years 
the boldest contribution, the freshest contribution, is Hugh White's 2019 book, How to Defend Australia. Because amongst other things, it proposes increasing our defence spending to 3.5% of GDP and possibly acquiring submarines armed with nuclear missiles. These are definitely bold ideas. But Hugh seems to be alone in really putting himself out there. Now, there are other ideas, I guess, out there that we could debate. For the defence policy wonks listening, you know, should we turn the Cocos Islands into Diego Garcia? Should we allow nuclear submarines from the US to be stationed in Perth or, or more warplanes in Darwin? Or on the other side of the ledger, you know, should the Commonwealth government follow Victoria's example and, and sign up to the Belt and Road? Or perhaps, given Beijing seems mostly to want us not to do things rather than to do things, should we scale back our military involvements with other countries? Should we pull out our military brass from Indo-PACOM? Or should we just say nothing at all about issues of rights and freedoms and, and praise the governance of Hong Kong? Yeah, to me, each of these ideas could be classified as fresh thinking. But of course, I'm not saying any of them are good ideas, just that they are fresh ones. So that's my first point. To so my second point, and after calming down, I then put my social scientist hat back on and asked, if I'm right, and if there isn't that much untapped fresh thinking out there, then why am I right? What explains this absence? Now, one reason might be, as we've discussed before, Alan, that Australia might lack the agency to be bold, to be fresh and bold. But let's put that debate to one side, because I thought of a second reason. And it starts with a young man whose name is Vitalik Buterin, whom I'd never heard of until a few weeks ago, when Tyler Cowan, who I follow very closely, linked to a blog post by him that was sort of a retrospective of 2020. And I'll post it for the listeners. Baterin is a, a 26 years old, and he co-founded one of the major cryptocurrencies out there called Ethereum, which I'd also never heard of. And it was a really interesting and erudite, provocative post. And I came away thinking, wow, this is a really smart guy. So I wondered, could some genius 26-year-old be the solution to this apparent malaise of Australian foreign policy? And I realized that my answer to this question is probably no, because unlike the world of cryptocurrencies, the world of innovation, or even the world of business generally, the barriers to entry to public policy, especially in the foreign and defense policy space, are very high, because these are the domains of large institutions, bureaucracies, and further, they are very much both enabled and constrained by politics. So not only would someone need a deep subject matter expertise, access to the most up-to-date information, which is often kept secret by governments, but you would also need to understand how the institutions of governance themselves work and how politics works. Or alternatively, if you're someone like Trump, you know, you would need to take over these institutions and then break them in order to achieve what you wanted to achieve. So it's just it's, it's inconceivable to me that someone without these traits who chose to work within the system and not try to break it could really have much traction. But those with these traits tend to be wise old owls like yourself who have acquired them. No, shut up. <laughs> who have acquired them with decades of experience working inside the system. So that's point two. Point three, third and final point here. If you're listening and you think I'm wrong, and you do think there is an untapped well of fresh thinking out there, perhaps you yourself have some ideas, then I, I have this challenge for you. Write about it, but understand that whatever good ideas you have, and no matter what subject area you're talking about, I do think that ultimately you are still going to have to grapple 
with maybe the two biggest questions of Australian foreign policy, because I think everything comes down to these eventually. One, how do we manage our relations with the two superpowers and the trade-offs involved there? And two, the question of money and fiscal constraints. In other words, how could any government be convinced or could they convince themselves, convince Australian taxpayers to pay for these bold and fresh ideas? And that, of course, is one of the major question marks hovering over Hugh White's excellent book. So my argument, I mean, I I don't think that any bold or fresh idea is going to have long-term impact without addressing both the great powers question and the money question. And if I'm right, then we are back to a world of incrementalism, which isn't meaningless, but it's incremental policy changes, it's questions of framing, and what one might think of as stale, boring, but ultimately stable policymaking. So um, feel free to prove me wrong, listeners. I'd be quite happy if you did so. But Alan, any reaction from you before we wrap up? Well said, my young friend. (laughs) You soar like an eagle. Darren, that was interesting and provocative. I, I really enjoyed reading his piece. But a couple of points. First, it was interesting to see how quickly your discussion, your comments about what you begin by describing as the Australian foreign policy debate turned into a strategic policy debate, submarines, basing decisions, joint exercises. And that's part of our problem, the way we now think about foreign policy as a subset of defence policy rather than as an adjacent element Mm. of statecraft. Over the past four years, it seems to me the scope of Australian foreign policy has become increasingly constricted. You can trace it in a way through the issues we've covered on the podcast. China and the US must have taken up, I don't know, well over 50% of our time in the last 65 episodes and nothing else has been getting much oxygen. Now, I'm not denying the importance of the huge strategic shifts underway, including the ending of the Second World War order, And the pandemic has uh, undoubtedly added a large degree of difficulty. But there is more that can be done in the foreign policy area. There just is. And you and I have talked about some of these issues before. How do we rethink multilateralism for the 21st century? And I think that some of the things Bertrand writes about on that blog post you recommended are really relevant here. On what issues of importance to us in Australia whether they're economic or political or strategic, can Australia get more out of Europe now that we no longer have easy access to the British voice there? How do we do it? We've agreed before that we've been neglecting Southeast Asia. What's the best mechanism for us to meaningfully re-engage as a partner with that crucial region rather than just as an accidental neighbour? I don't think I agree with you that the barriers to entry are as high as you suggest either. Of course, you need to know what you're talking about. You need to learn and understand the subject, but that's a barrier to entry for everything from cooking to cryptocurrency. (laughs) Once you've done that, there are plenty of ways of influencing the debate and you just have to really look at the contending Australian voices in the relationship with China to see that. I'll quote the last para of Buterin's reflections. Finally, he says, it's a very multidisciplinary world, one that is very much harder to break up into layers and analyse each layer separately. You may need to switch from one style of analysis to another style of analysis in mid-sentence. 
Things happen for strange and inscrutable reasons, and there are always surprises. The question remains, how do we adopt to it? And there's not an element in that that a foreign policy analyst wouldn't wholeheartedly agree with. Mm. Mm. Thanks, Alan. That's a terrific response. If you don't mind me having the last word, yeah, if you like. let, me, let me say two things. The first one is I can see in your response a clear question to be answered, which is, am I right when I claim that any sort of fresh ideas ultimately bump up against US-China issues and fiscal issues? Yeah. You're, I think you're right in principle that there are plenty of things we could do, but part of my argument is that very quickly it collapses, and especially this is true in the Southeast Asia question, into well, how are you going to navigate China and the, and the US and how much more money do you want to spend? And so that is, I think, a really nice clear distinction of whether or not those two are further barriers to entry, not just for individuals, but for the policy ideas themselves. And this, I think, then gets to a question of agency, which we've talked about previously. And the second point, and on this one, our listeners can judge for themselves, but to me, it feels like much of the time, though not all of the time, one of the, the dynamics on this podcast, where I'm the ivory tower academic and you are the wise old owl, Alan, is that I will say something that's maybe a little bit bolder, but is said without a full appreciation of the policy landscape, and you will gently pull me back in. And you could even say that's true in a sense here, where I'm expressing a radical <laughs> adherence to the status quo, yeah. and you're saying, calm down, Darren, it's not quite like that. So I think our dynamic is an interesting, it certainly informs, I think, you know, the, the views I've just expressed then, and there's something for our listeners to contemplate. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's wrap up today with our final segment, reading, listening, and watching. Alan, what's your recommendation this week? Well, sadly, all the reading, listening, or watching I've been doing has been connected to research on the past four years of Australian foreign policy for my book writing. And I'm afraid I just can't even pretend to our listeners that the collected speeches of Scott Morrison or Maurice Payne are fun <laughs> recreational reading for the summer. I did finally read Malcolm Turnbull's memoir, A Bigger Picture, and Christopher Pine's The Insider for this purpose. And of the two, I have to say that Turnbull's at least has the saving grace of some serious content <laughs> over much of glories in its own hero. <laughs> Pines, look, I'm, I'm afraid to say this, but it really does appear to have been put together in a blender. Okay, thanks, Alan. For me, as as we said earlier, I watched Joe Biden's inauguration and, and his inaugural address live because I was awake at the time. And it was a terrific speech that I really think understood the current mood and moment in history and what he needs to do and his administration needs to do. But having said that, it didn't give me goosebumps. And in fact, the only time I got goosebumps watching was when he actually took the oath of office. And I thought to myself, ah, we made it, phew. Biden, it must be said, isn't an amazing orator. That's not his style. And he doesn't go for the soaring rhetoric. And look, that's fine. And, and it may be the best for this moment. But personally, I do have a soft spot for, for moving, truly moving speeches. And so I want to recommend, well, firstly, the poetry of Amanda Gorman that you mentioned earlier, Alan. But another one is an eight minute or less than eight minute speech that was given by Arnold Schwarzenegger, a short recorded and posted on, on the internet on the 10th of January. And it dealt with the events you know, of, of surrounding the storming of the Capitol and the general trauma that 
is being experienced by America's democracy right now. And it was able to draw analogies to, to Nazism, but in a tactful and, and thoroughly profound way. And it was really an amazing speech, and it did give me goosebumps throughout. So I'll post a link to it and absolutely recommend it as being worth your time. Okay, well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank AAA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks and talk to you again soon.